Welcome back to Moments in Leadership. Today, my guest is the ninth vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral James Sandy Winnefeld. I want to give a special thanks out to his son, Marine Captain James Winnefeld, an artillery officer who's serving as an officer selection officer in Seattle for setting up this interview. Captain Winnefeld has been published four times in the U.S. Naval Institute's Proceedings Magazine. And uh, my favorite article is from 2019 called Call in the Blue-Gray Cavalry. Uh, so check that out. I'll put the link to that in the show notes. But keep up the great work out there, Skipper. Appreciate you setting this up for us. Okay, so here's a quick update on the project. And don't go reaching for that advanced 30-second button yet. Yes, you PMAC. Just bear with me on this. In June, the total listeners for the podcast crossed 10,000, which I consider to be a major milestone, especially given that I don't even have 20 episodes yet. So as of October 1st, the total downloads are about 21,200. That's a lot, and that's a huge growth. So thank you to everyone who has been sharing the project with their network. I really appreciate the support. It really means a lot. Okay, so on the topic of support, I believe everyone who wants to learn from the project and also from the guests should be able to. And by supporting Moments in Leadership through the donation platform, you help ensure that people who can't afford to pay for this content don't have to. This is the important part. I've switched off of Patreon and over to something called Supercast. It's the same concept, but it's specifically designed for podcast and it supports Apple Pay and it's just way easier to use. So if you signed up for either the buy me a beer level or the hot wash level through Patreon, I shut off all the billing there so you don't need to worry about that. And I've also sent everyone an email on how to switch over. But in case you missed it, go to www.mil.supercast.com and I'll put that link in the show notes. But follow the instructions there for re-signing up. I understand that some people have had some trouble there. I've worked with their tech support. I think I've got that fixed. I'd love to see everyone from the Patreon site sign back up through the new Supercast site. For everyone else who wants to support the project, please go to the same website, and I'll put a link in the show notes again. But it's www.mil.supercast.com. Your contributions will keep Moments in Leadership sustainable, and I appreciate the growing membership of people who feel that the project is valuable for emerging leaders. Right now, I have two donation levels, the $4.99 Buy Me a Beer level, and then the $9.99 Hot Wash level. So the Buy Me a Beer level is just that. If you met me in a bar and said, dude, I love the podcast, Uh, can I buy you a beer? It's it's just that. It's It's a donation. As for the hot wash level, I'm finally figuring that all out. And for those of you who subscribed at this level, I'm going to have early access rights to future episodes. So for example, I'll drop new episodes for you all. And then maybe two weeks later, I will open it up for the public to listen to. And additionally, I still have the hot wash episode panel discussion with the group of officers who are all SBCs together back in 2019. And we've recorded the first episode there and it's still an edit. Um, This is why I need some support to help get uh, all this editing done faster. And believe me, you know, editing six captains talking is like editing war and peace. I'm I'm kidding, of course, but everybody there on that panel has got a good sense of humor. So, but look, these episodes will be dropping for subscribers first and then the public later. And I just think that's a fair trade off. So I'm still working all of it out. I feel obligated to provide some sort of exclusive, get the episodes first benefit to people who are donating at that level. And then I'm going to open up also a sort of Ask Me Anything site on that Supercast page for donors uh, of, of those levels. And that'll allow you to propose questions to future guests. And I'll use whatever name you want me to. 
for uh, for giving credit or I'll mention someone else's name who's important to you if I use the question, but I'm going to turn that on here pretty soon and figure that all out. There's also a way to just say, hey man, one off, here's five bucks, one-time donation. Somebody already did that, really appreciate it. That was, that was just really cool. So anyway, I'm going to keep experimenting with this since it's in my nature to always be searching for a better way. You can always shoot me suggestions or ideas at the mill office at gmail.com link in the show notes, or you can DM me over my Instagram account, which is at the mill office. Finally, if you like the project and it's not in your budget to support it, that's totally cool. I'm not doing this to try to get subscribers. I'm just trying to get some help with the costs that I'm incurring. There is a way that you can support it, and that's by leaving a review on Apple or a rating on Spotify. So I know every single podcast person asks people, oh, rate and review and blah, blah, blah. But look, it only takes a second, and it really is a way to help in a way that has nothing to do with donating. I mean, if you just listen to two hours of this and you like it, I'm just asking you to take 10 seconds and tell other people about it. It's easy day. And uh, it's really valuable to me and the project. So if you don't mind doing that, would really appreciate it. And in fact, all right, here's what I'll do. I will, I can look at the dates of the reviews on Apple and starting the day that this drops, I'll pick one name out of 30, the next 30 reviews after this drops and I'll give that person a free hot wash membership. So as for our upcoming guests, I have First Sergeant Seamus Flynn. He's already recorded and in editing. Uh, I have yeses from General Bellin to come back on and do a shorter episode to tell a specific story about his time as a lawyer. General Furnace agreed offline after our last episode to come back on probably sometime after November because he's really jammed up with some stuff right now. I had a conversation with General Farrell Sullivan, who's agreed to cut an episode sometime in November. And Sergeant Major uh, Ruiz from Marfor Res has agreed to come on. We're just working on trying to find a time to record. As for some other people, I have General Philip Breedlove, who is an uh, Air Force F-16 pilot. He's agreed to an episode. He's a retired four-star general who was the 17th Supreme Allied Commander Europe, or SACUR, of NATO Allied Command Operations from 2013 to 2016. Working on some more enlisted folks. My network just isn't as deep there, so it's taking me longer. And look, I don't, I don't want to jinx this, but I'm working on a really well-known military fiction writer who's working on his sixth book right now. He's not a yes, but I'm working on it for early next year with his publisher. He served a career in the military, so I think that one could be really interesting. If at some point in your life you've been granted three wishes by a genie, consider using one of them for me to get that episode going. So, okay, back to this episode. Admiral James Winnefeld Jr. served as the ninth vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In this capacity, he was a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the nation's second highest ranking military officer. Admiral Winnefeld graduated from Georgia Institute of Technology and received his commission from the Navy ROTC program. He subsequently served with three fighter squadrons, flying the F-14 Tomcat, and was an instructor at Naval Fighter Weapons School, or Top Gun. Admiral Winnefeld's commands at sea included Fighter Squadron 211, raw checkmates, uh, the USS Cleveland LPD-7, and the USS Enterprise CVN-65, which we talk about at length in the podcast he led the Big E through her 18th deployment, which included combat operations in Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom, immediately after the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. As commander of Carrier Strike Group 2, Theodore Roosevelt Carrier Strike Group, he led Task Forces 50, 152, and 58 in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom and maritime interception operations in the Arabian Gulf. 
He also served as the commander of United States Sixth Fleet and commander striking and support forces NATO. He also served as the commander of North American Aerospace Defense Command, otherwise known as NORAD, and the U.S. Northern Command, U.S. Northcom. Admiral Winnefeld's awards include the Defense Distinguished Service Medal, the Distinguished Service Medal, Defense Superior Service Medal, the Legion of Merit, the Bronze Star, the Defense Meritorious Service Medal, the Meritorious Service Medal, the Air Medal, and five Battle Efficiency Awards. He is the host of the Adrenaline Zone podcast, which can be found on all major players, and he runs Safe Project, whose mission is to contribute in a tangible way to overcoming the addiction epidemic in the United States. Links to those are both in the show notes below. So with that, welcome Admiral James Winnefeld. My first question for you today is, what is your call sign and why is it Sandy? <laughs> well, Sandy's a nickname. My real name is James Alexander Winnefeld, and Sandy is a traditional Scottish nickname for Alexander. And we needed to have a way to tell my father and I, uh, apart. So I was Sandy and hated that for maybe a year of my young life, but then realized, uh, you know, hey, no biggie. And it stuck with me ever since. The call sign is a different story. That My call sign was Jaws. And there's a little bit of a story that goes with that, where when I came from the training command, I had a, a call sign somebody had given me because of something that happened and, and it was magic. And I walked into my first F-14 ready room and they said, well, you can't be magic. First of all, we already have a magic. And second of all, you haven't proven yourself. That magic just doesn't apply. So you better think of something really fast or we're going to hang you with something. Right. And I looked up on the aircraft carrier landing greenie board at all the names and the call signs. And I saw one that was CJ and it was a guy named CJ Welty. And he just used his initials. So I said, hmm, what are my initials? Well, they're J-A-W. Now I'll be Joss. Okay. And uh, of course, you do stupid things when you're young and people try to hang a new call sign on you. And if you act like you don't like it, it'll stick. So there's that sort of process, but somehow Jaws managed. And the punchline to the story is that my dad was a two-star admiral in the Navy. And unbeknownst to me, some people were uh, using the term Jaws to mean just Admiral Winnefeld's son. And so there's no <laughs> slack in naval aviation. <laughs> That's and, terrific. Uh, you know, if you let that get under your skin, you've got more problems than that. Right. I think that may be the first leadership lesson we talk about is for any young people listening is if you get assigned a call sign, the last thing you should do is try to fight it. I ended up getting tagged with a nickname that ended up becoming my call sign as a JTAC, which is belly and had absolutely nothing to do with then being fat. And uh, yeah, as soon as somebody, I was walking around the University of South Carolina, I was in an ROTC carrying a big jug of water because I was trying to hydrate. I was new to the humidity and everything down there. And somebody called me water belly. And I said, don't call me that. And there you go. That was the end of it. So it's over. Probably a great, <laughs> great leadership lesson for everybody. I think that goes along with that is the, the real leadership lesson is, is humility. You know, not letting your ego get into that kind of thing and just take it as it comes. That's true. I, and, but I think it's the call sign though, it, the humility thing with the call sign is you just, when you hear a call sign, you say, my gosh, somebody's going to call me that for a really long time. And I really don't like it. It's, that's a tough one, but <laughs> no, you're right though. Humility, yeah. humility is a great thing to talk about. And I'm sure we'll jump into that, but to kick things off here, you are a Naval aviator. You flew for your, most of your career. And I find that leadership is an interesting topic to talk about with aviators because in my mind, and I'm asking the question because I, I want you to clear this up. In my mind, when I think of a pilot, I think them up there in the plane pl flying it and 
not really about leading anything other than themselves and maybe crew members during a mission, but there's way more to it than that. And I'm wondering if you can talk about some of your early experiences with leadership, because it may have even been during training. So kind of your first five years, I know is there's a lot of training, but is there exposure to leadership in your first five years? Well, it's a really, really good question because there, there's the old adage, you know, like, you know, the Army and Marine Corps uh, equip, you know, men and women now, and, you know, the Navy man's equipment. And that's a bit of a cliche. There is a lot of leadership involved in flying and in particular in, you know, tactical aviation where you not only, and in a two-seat airplane, you're obviously in a leadership role with, uh, you know, because you're a crew, but equally importantly, you know, you might have a wingman, you might be flying as a division of four airplanes. And it really matters if you have uh, somebody in the lead of a section of F-14s or F-18s or F-35s or whatever, who knows what they're doing and is an, a, as a, a good leader. And there are every aspect you can think of of leadership that matters uh, applies up in the air. You know, exceptional competence, humility, courage, integrity, skill, all of those things matter when you're uh, leading another airplane. And I, I can tell you from those early years as a wingman, trying to learn how to be a flight lead, I was watching like a hawk and I was very blessed as a young F-14 pilot to be assigned permanently to the wing of a former Top Gun instructor who had come back to the fleet. And to this day, uh, uh, it's a miracle because I learned so much from him. His name was Marty Chanik, who by, by coincidence, I actually relieved him as the captain of Enterprise when I took Enterprise. Oh, wow. So uh, that was a lot of fun. but. I, I sort of disagreed with them doing that because that way Streak was only able to apply his teaching ability to me. And I felt that he was such a remarkable flight lead and a teacher that he should have been spread around the squadron a little bit more. But I wasn't going to complain publicly because I was really lucky to have him as a teacher. Right. When you look back on your first five years, what is one of your earliest memories of, okay, you're out of training, you're checking into a squadron. I'm assuming you get assigned to a division or a section. Talk about those first days. Yeah, I think one of the things that really I recall is that I, I was astounded that there were people who were so privileged and good and, and lucky to, to get into that position of being an F-14 pilot in the Navy and weren't willing to work as hard as they possibly could to master it. They were good people. They were good pilots. They're friends, they're fantastic, but I was a little surprised that they weren't willing to just completely apply themselves to, to mastering this. And this was in the, in the training squadron, the VF-124, and maybe to a certain degree in my first squadron. I learned very quickly that rich get richer and that interest compounds, uh, intellectual interest compounds. And I just, I just, just deeply curious. And so, so that was a, an early lesson was, you know, you need to really strap it on and learn as much as you possibly can about your profession as early as you can. And that interest compounds over time. That was one thing. Another was, uh, I, obviously I watched my commanding officers, training command, fleet replacement squadron, and early squadron CEOs. And, you know, just a tremendous variety of leadership styles from those guys and some good, some not so good. And uh, I, I found at an early age that I could learn from both of those. I could learn from the good leaders as well as the average leaders or the poor leaders. And so I, I started to take a laser focus on the, on the guys who were in charge to, to see what I could figure out 
uh, what worked and what didn't work. I'm assuming because you were, you were commissioned in the late 70s. So we're talking mid 80s by the time you're walking into your first squadron. That's really only 15, 20 years removed from Vietnam. So I'm assuming a lot of the senior officers that were commanding officers at the time had flight time, combat time in Vietnam. Is that true? Yeah, I got to my first F-14 squadron actually in the early 80s. So it was it was not far removed at all. And there were people who had flown F-4s in Vietnam, people who had flown F-8s in Vietnam mm. in those squadrons. They weren't full of sea stories and all of that, but it was a different era of naval aviation. Naval aviation has matured so much in the last 40 years in terms of safety, its attitudes, it's it's hard to describe, but there, there there were a lot of Vietnam veterans in the squadron. So one of the reoccurring questions I get when I talk to young officers, which I've been doing more of recently, which and I really appreciate their perspective on everything, but a reoccurring question or or theme that is embedded in the question is how do you keep the attention of young members of the military, both enlisted and officer, when the big war is over? There is nothing obvious going on right now. And the leaders who are in squadrons right now or battalions probably have combat experience and their younger officers and younger enlisted do not have combat experience and really don't see any on the horizon, which we all know is just a minute away from changing. But I'm wondering if you could share some experiences with what it was like to be a young officer and leading in an environment where quite possibly the people you were leading and flying with had serious combat experience. The vibe when I was uh, a young J.O. in my first squadron was no longer Vietnam. It was the Russians. Uh, I was a West Coast pilot, and we would transit across the great wide Pacific Ocean. And the Russians were always out there trying to find us. And, you know, one of the events that happened when I was a young J.O. was the shoot down of the KAL 007 airliner by the Russians over Sakhalin Island. And the very next day, I was flying on the wing of a bear bomber that was coming out to try to find USS Ranger. So uh, the, the Russia piece was uh, very much on our minds. So we did have something to focus on. But it was a completely different thing. It wasn't, you know, flying against uh, SA-2s and SA-3s in North Vietnam and worrying about getting shot down. It was, it was really trying to defend your carrier against a, a growing Russian threat. We applied considerable creativity and uh, effort to try to manage that threat because the Russians were getting better all the time, better airplanes, better missiles and the like. So I didn't really run into that issue. The, we were not stagnant in that regard. That's fascinating because really the, the correlation I draw there is that young junior officers and younger enlisted emerging leaders are, are looking at the same thing right now. There's, there is a new focus, a new threat. We're pivoting towards responding and training and equipping and organizing to that threat. And, and I think it's probably very similar to what you were experiencing, which was, hey, there, there is something to be focused on right now. It, it may not be kinetic, but it certainly applies to the training environment. Yeah, Dave. And I think the real challenge is there's always going to be that new threat out there is, is examining what you've been doing for the last 20 years and uh, retaining what you need to retain and being willing to jettison what is no longer applicable. And I think we are, in some cases, having a hard time breaking out of the counterinsurgency. We've always had air superiority. We've always had maritime superiority and, and shifting over into a completely different threat and trying to think in new ways about that new threat. That is the challenge. I think it's less sort of a 
you know, okay, we just got a con- got out of combat and now there's something else out there. It's more like, hey, that something else is very real and very different and requires different thinking. That's the challenge, I think. Right. And, and you talked about the, the, the need for intellectual curiosity and how you noticed that early on in your career. And I, and I think that young emerging leaders are going to have to really look at their intellectual curiosity and start coming up with interesting, creative and new solutions that have never been thought about or never employed in combat before, because I do think that things are different now. I just, you just watch videos of the drone stuff. That's all you need to know to know that things are going to be different next time. True. And I think that you have to work, you have to work hard to prepare yourself to do that different thinking. It doesn't just happen. It requires deep reading and study, both vertically in your profession, but also adjacent to it and even further out horizontally so that you can be equipped with the, the knowledge you need to bring different and disparate uh, ideas together, which is the essence of creativity. So it's not just like, okay, we got to think differently. Now let's start thinking differently. You've got you to have the tools to do that. And it takes a lot of work to educate yourself, to be able to contribute. I see a lot of books in your background. Um, I'm wondering how much, how much fiction do you read? Oh, I love reading fiction. I, I, I believe that a lot of the most innovative things that we do come out of fiction writing. In fact, in my own podcast, The Adrenaline Zone, we just interviewed Andy Weir, who was the author of The Martian. And also he's got a new book out called Hail Mary, Project Hail Mary. So I, I think that you can get a lot of uh, dreaming done in the fiction world that magically, uh, eventually, sometimes turns to fruition. The classic example, of course, is you know the flip phone and Star Trek, right? But there's a lot more to it than that. So uh, yeah, fiction's important as well as nonfiction. I'm so glad you answered the question that way because I am in 100% agreement with you. And and I'll I'll punctuate what you just said by this: when I read fiction, I find myself imagining and thinking in a way that is creative and I can immerse myself in the story and, and almost see myself there. And I remember very clearly the first time I ever started thinking about, wow, what is the next war going to look like was when I read that um, war planner series uh, and uh, the, the author's name is escaping me right now, but it's a whole book about basically fictional world war three and it incorporates n- naval warfare and aviation and special operations and intelligence and everything. And I just read that and I think, my God, you read this and, and you can really start thinking about, what the next war could be could look like and and so i know a lot it's very popular for young officers to be reading you know history and things like that but don't don't discount fiction yeah i, I also think dave that fiction is important on the other part, part of our discussion that is leadership it's not just about the future of warfare the leadership so if you read uh the cane mutiny by herman mm-hmm. wook a classic i've got a couple of first editions of that book i think it's so valuable you uh, read once an eagle you get some pretty good leadership training out of the fiction uh, genre also. But uh, I'm with you. I think that uh, being able to dream of the future through fiction is really, really important. Right. Pivoting back to something you said a few minutes ago, we were talking about early, early on leadership, and you said that you were watching your commanding officers and some of the training squadron commanders, and you saw some good and you saw some bad. I want to explore that a little bit more. If you could maybe talk about some of the really great leaders that you remember from early on in your career and and what was it about their leadership style that resonated with you and that you wanted to emulate? And then I'm going to follow up with a question about some of the bad leadership that you saw. Yeah, I would say that the the leaders that I experienced in the first maybe five years of my career, for the most part, were pretty average guys out there put into a leadership position who were doing a good job. I really respected them for that. I had one 
to your second follow-up question a little earlier than you expected. Okay. <laughs> I had one that was maybe a little bit more of a suck up, a little bit more about himself, a very good basic pilot, but not a great tactician. And I, I kind of determined not to be that. In fairness, all those guys were were solid leaders who had made their way up through the system and were doing a good job as F-14 squadron commanders. The first time I ran across what I, I considered to be a really great leader was uh, when I became Colin Powell's aide. And this was in the early 90s when I was a lieutenant commander. So I'm still young. It's not my first five years, but I'm still young. And he was just a remarkable individual. He, he had to work twice as hard as anybody else because he was African-American growing up in a military in an age when African-Americans were not uh, as harder for them to advance, quite honestly. We've come a long way there. He also grew up in the Bronx. So he had a little chutzpah, you know, uh, from that. And he ran circles around the, the leaders who were around him because he had that combination of skill and chutzpah, you know, real world sort of knowledge, street knowledge. But he was also a very caring, thoughtful man. And one of the consistent themes in my leadership life that I learned from him was something he said when we were riding around in the car one day on our way somewhere, and I'm in the, you know, carrying the briefcase, sitting in the front seat, being quiet, you know, as an aide should. And he's in the back and he just mused out loud. I said, you know, Sandy, the essence of leading people is holding them to the highest possible standards while taking the best possible care of them. And that, how profound is that? You know, it works with your kids. It works with your troops. People want to be held to high standards. You know, morale never goes up when standards fall, that old adage. But they also want to know somebody cares about them and is bending over backwards to do everything they can to ensure their prosperity and their survival and all that. That was just sort of rolled right off his tongue. <laughs> and yeah, uh, a lot of other things uh, Colin Powell did, and it's really sad that we lost him this year. That was a, a, a real experience for me to be around him. I'll bet. What, what an amazing experience. You have a, a son who's in the Marine Corps. And so he's of the current generation that I'm about to ask you the next question about. Because one of the themes that I came across last week, I was speaking to a group of captains out at HMLA 267 on the West Coast. And uh, we were having a little very informal PME. Although I was disappointed that they didn't break the beers out for it. Uh, I think aviation's changed a little bit. <laughs> but uh, that's my little uh, poke at them. I have to counsel those guys. I, I know, I know. It, it, so one of the questions and, and conversations that came up was the difference between the legacy definition of caring about people, which is, let's just say, the definition of caring about people when you and I grew up in the military. and how the current generation of young emerging leaders thinks that there's a different definition to the word caring. And I think that there's a disconnect between what we think when I say we, I mean, our generation, Sandy, you and I, and what that generation thinks about the word caring and what that really means. And I'm wondering, you know, with your son, if you ever talk to him, do, do you see a different perspective from that generation about what it is that they're expecting leaders their senior leaders right now to actually be doing that meets their definition of caring? Yeah, it's a really insightful question because I've always believed that 90% of leadership is sort of timeless principles, things you do and don't do. But there's that 10% on top that varies with generations. And my generation, I'm a, I'm a boomer, I admit it, is a lot different from the millennial generation, which is a lot different from the current generation that's entering the force. I really became conscious of this when I was probably a three-star and certainly as a four-star, that the action officers I was working with were very different from what I was like. They all worked hard. 
They were all, you know, dedicated to service, all those, all the right things. But there was something different about them. They wanted to engage with the boss. They wanted to be known by the boss. They wanted to get feedback. They wanted to be able to challenge the boss. I would never dream of challenging my boss when I was a young lieutenant, lieutenant commander. One of the things that worked the best for me as a vice chairman and the J5 was inviting these young people down to my office and making it very clear to them that they were in a safe environment that they should feel free to challenge me, that I was going to work with them. I was going to collaborate with them. And it wasn't going to be, you know, I don't like this, go bring me another rock. And I think they really, really appreciated that. So that's a different kind of caring. You know, when I grew up, taking care of your people was making sure they got promoted. Right. Or fed and, or paid. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and these guys want more than that. And I, you know, I look at my son, I look at other young people out there. They are so much more aware personally, of what's going on around them uh, with that emotional IQ than I ever was, than any of my contemporaries were. You know, of course, we paid attention to each other and we, we thought we were pretty smart, but these guys are 10 times more uh, aware. And I don't know whether that's because of social media or, or what, but their expectations are higher and, and they are deliverable expectations. It's not, you know, they want to be pampered. It's they want to be taken care of. That's such a fascinating statement, and, and I want to explore that a little bit more because I think you're right. What it is that young emerging leaders want in terms of caring is, is absolutely deliverable. I think you're right that people want to have meaningful conversations and even healthy, respectful debate on issues with their boss. I see it in my civilian job also. I think it's really great. Here, here's what it's a byproduct of. When you recruit and retain the best and brightest, that's what you're getting, <laughs> the best yeah. and the brightest. Yeah. And the best and the brightest have a, a desire to want to debate and argue and take counterpoints or even play, devil, play devil's advocate, even if they don't believe the, the perspective, they want to hear the debate because they're trying to figure out how their leaders think. They want to know that they're following a competent person, like you said before. I think this is the mechanism that they, they use to get it. I do think that what they're craving is deliverable. And a lot of it just has to do with finding a new way of communicating. And, and when you and I grew up, we probably had bosses say, hey, I have an open door policy. And then the minute you use the open door policy, somebody starts screaming, chain of command, chain of command. And there really wasn't an yeah. open door policy. There was an open door policy to say, hey, how are you, sir? But that was about it. Yeah, the way I would put it is, is that these people want to know the why along with the what, and you know, m my generation might've been more happy with just the what. what. And when you can fill them in on the why, and they really understand it, then they'll run through a brick wall for you. They have to know that this is the way we're gonna do it, but I'm willing to listen to you before that formal and final decision. But when I make that decision, you're gonna have to, you know, hopefully you understand the why and you agree with the why, but you gotta now come with me, follow me, that kind of thing. But that, there's that other layer in there that I think is more important than it ever was. I agree. I think that commanders these days in any branch of the service need to earn the trust. I, I think, you know, there's this expectation that you have the rank so people will obey your, your orders. And that's, that's probably, well, that's true. But I think in order for them to really trust you and follow you, that's not something that just comes immediately with rank. That's something you have to earn. And in order to do that, you need to, you need to pick the time in your training schedules 
where you can explain the why, because the more you explain the why, the more they will understand how you think. So then when you do say, I need you to do this and I don't have time for the why, you've built the trust with them. And I think that's a really important thing for young leaders to understand. If they have the why, they may well be doing it before you even ask them to. (laughs) That's that's a fact. Exactly. Admiral Boxel, who I suppose you know from uh, from your time in the Navy, but he cut up an episode late in 2021 and he talked about how he walked down to the flight line one time when he was a CAG and wondered why they were launching the helicopters before the jets. And one of the E3s looked at him and said, sir, because you said the, the most important thing to do is find the submarines. And that we use the helicopters to find the submarines. Go. That's why we're doing it. He was like blown away. thought it was really great. But you know, one of the things that I've, that I've come to know about senior leaders and, and retired senior leaders like yourself is that they're extremely humble, but I'm wondering if you can talk about, the very first time that you looked in the mirror and you were really proud of yourself as a leader and you, and you said to yourself, you know what? I just, I just crushed that. I don't really, really recall ever having that particular emotion, but looking back on it, there, there are probably a couple of times when, when it occurred to me that, Hey, this went pretty well. It could not possibly happen to me as an aviator really until I was a commanding officer of a squadron. You know, and that's one of the differences between the the ground forces and the you know say aviation community. As, as a marine or a young army officer, you get you know some semblance of command awfully early as a platoon commander, battery commander, mm-hmm. or a company commander. You know, that doesn't happen to you as an aviator until you're kind of a squadron commander. Uh, although there are those aviation in the air leadership moments, I, I you know I've described earlier in terms of organizational leadership. It doesn't happen until you're actually anointed as a commanding officer. And then at that point, I think, the th- I think the things that made me the most proud was those moments as a leader when your people excel, either when you challenge them or when something comes up and you're not there and they do the right thing. That's when you feel really good because, hey, I've trained these people. I've breathed what I believe into them. And now they went off and they did something really cool. That was right in line with what I taught them. So a couple of examples there, maybe one from when I was younger and maybe one from when I was older. When I was a squadron CEO, we, we were told, I think in June of, of the, one of the years I was a CEO, that we were out of money, that the, the government was out of money and we were going to have to basically stop flying for three months. And I remember getting a call from a three-star saying, make sure you show the pain. And I turned around and said to myself, that's, that's not my job. My job is not to show pain and to whine and complain. My job is to take the money the taxpayers have given us, how little, however little it is, and make the best possible fighter squadron I can. And so we did some pretty remarkable things, you know, use the simulators more than anybody probably ever did. We took field trips. We did massive amounts of training. We took all of our jets apart, put them back together. And my point was, we're going to turn this negative into a positive, folks, and we're going to be a better squadron when it's over. And when it was over, we actually, in the first week, got all of our airplanes airborne, which is pretty remarkable for those old F-14s. And we flew a 50-sortie day uh, with live ordnance. People said, you know, you're crazy for doing that so soon, but we prepared for it. And standing back and watching that squadron perform under those arduous conditions, I felt very Proud of the fact, not because I was out there, you know, cheerleading them, but because they had come through as a group of, of young, at, at that point, young men and women. Another thing that I was very proud of, again, this is about other people doing things. 
was when I was a strike group commander in the Arabian Gulf in 2005 and 2006. And this was, as you recall, a very, very difficult time on the ground in Iraq. We were losing a lot of troopers. And the classic rhythm for a carrier air wing was to you know, fly five days, take two off to do maintenance and fly five days and that sort of stuff. But we were flying close air support missions for our troopers. And you as a JTAC totally understand what that's about. And I was sitting there in my admiral's cabin thinking, how can I convince the carrier CO and the CAG that we really can fly every day and support our troops? And as I was sitting there wondering how I would broach this to them, they walked in the door and said, Admiral, we've got a proposal for you. We really think that we can fly every day because our troopers are suffering out there on the ground. And I didn't, I said, man, that's really a great idea. You know, wish I'd thought of that. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and, but I was, I was secretly so proud that, that they had thought of that themselves. I felt like maybe it had something to do with how I trained them as an air wing commander and a carrier CO, but it was a really great moment uh, in my mind. That's a fantastic story. I love that because it just embodies everything about leadership and intent. And, and I love that, you know, other people doing things is sort of a great test for how successful you are as a, as a leader. I really like that a lot. You said something before about being an admiral. I want to ask you a kind of an unscripted question here. It's the hunt for red October. When Alec Baldwin walks into the, um, the stateroom of, I think it was an admiral and says, uh, there's the captain and he says, you know, you may want to give that kid some slack. Can you explain to the listeners what an admiral's cabin looks like? Cause you know, listen, probably the only time you're seeing that is if you're a really senior squadron commander or you're in really big trouble. So <laughs> tell people what that looks like. What is it like? What does an admiral's cabin look like? Well, on an aircraft carrier, it's a fairly, fairly large space. Uh, mm -hmm. Generally, What's interesting on an aircraft carrier is the captain's in-port cabin is really the sort of opulent, you know, statement cabin on the ship because they're, they're, all those ships have namesakes and there's a lot of memorabilia and, you know, rich uh, history of the namesake in the captain's cabin. And the admiral's cabin is often very plain. Okay. Uh, you've got a desk, you've got a bookshelf and, and uh, you know, you, you have a, a nice sitting area and a TV you know, where you can watch uh, either flight operations or CNN. It's not a uh, opulent, rich space, but I suppose people are intimidated by it because it's the Admiral's cabin. I never really tried to put that vibe out. It's not as intimidating as you might think. It's kind of interesting because, you know, 99% of people probably never see it, especially if you're a Marine. So that's great. So do you talk before about, you know, the good leaders and the bad leaders, quick follow-up question there, but what was the best lesson that you were taught by your worst leader? I guess the best lesson by a worst leader is, is not to be that person. And I would be honest in telling you that the worst leader that I served under was a, a captain of an aircraft carrier when I was an XO. And I, I think I can say this because this person has since passed away. But a, a very, very personally insecure person who was deeply resentful of the fact that he had been put in into place building a carrier rather than operating a carrier, which meant he probably wasn't going to make admiral. Mm -hmm. And I had always felt my whole career that, you know, you don't wake up in the morning asking yourself, well, what do I need to do today to become an admiral? That's just completely the wrong approach because you'll be risk averse. You'll, it'll be about you. 
you'll have a thin skin, all, all just all the awful things that go along with that. And this only amplified that in spades and solidified that. And I found that I had to be as DXO, the real sort of protector of the crew from this kind of tyrannical person. And I, I kept asking myself, I, I don't know how this person ever got to that position. So it was, it was, you know, don't be personally insecure and overly personally ambitious as a leader. Just try to do the right job every day, the very best you can. Try to make a difference. Try to take care of your people. Again, try to hold them to high standards. And everything else will work, work out. That's where the real fun is. The journey is the fun, not the destination. That's fascinating. I, I guess I never really thought about, you know, the, the leadership at being a captain and a carrier when you're reconstituting and, and everything. And I guess that that happens, but don't be insecure as a leader. I think every single person listening to this is at some point in their career said to themselves, how did that person get to that place? I'm wondering, is there something that from a leadership perspective, and this question is posed from, for the benefit of people who are senior leaders and listening to this right now, but what are some things that can be done to tighten that up a little bit? Because I, I don't think you'll ever get rid of the, how did that person get here? Because there will always be some people that do. But what are some, from your perspective as a retired four-star admiral, what are some things when you look back on your career and you say like, here, here are some things that I used to assess whether or not a leader should continue on in their career because they're tactically competent and they're good leaders or they're not? Yeah, that's a really tough question to answer because what you're you're trying to do is find a way to weed out the the knuckleheads and mm-hmm. keep the the good leaders and it, it varies with the service i think my personal experience in the navy is that we get it right more often than we get it wrong but sometimes we do get it wrong and we're we're missing that the key element of senior you know or uh, superiors i guess regardless of how senior they are, going and personally observing a leader in action in a stressful moment or what have you to see how that person leads. We just, because we're, you know, we have ships that are, you know, off by themselves, it's a little hard to observe. We uh, don't necessarily make it a point to our leaders to go do that. It's hard sometimes to spot uh, a person who, to his or her subordinates, is not a good leader when in fact on the face of it, they may appear to a superior as a good leader. And so you're hitting a, a, a very important point of this. How do you crack that nut? I know one thing that I always tried to do was get out and about. And I, I used to tell people, I can walk on the bridge of a ship that's getting underway. And I can tell you whether the CEO is a good leader or not within 20 minutes. Fascinating. Just by how the ship operates, how the, the leader composes himself or herself There's just so many clues that you get to spot. Teaching people that skill, I think, is terribly important. I agree. And and it's one of the reoccurring themes that I think, and I'm going to make up an example to highlight the theme, but on the Marine side, I think leaders will look at, okay, I don't want somebody to walk into my unit or walk up to my command post or anything like that and get that impression. I want somebody who walks up to my unit to to think right away. This is a well-disciplined unit a well-oiled machine, a well-led, and all that is a reflection on me as a leader. And that's important to me for career aspirations. Yeah. Like you say, you can walk up to a Marine unit and you can, because I've done this. I Mm -hmm. remember I was a CEO of an LPD. I have a son who's in the Marine Corps. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I've spent a lot of time around Marines, loved every moment of it, by the way. But you can walk up to a, a Marine in a unit and you can tell very quickly the command climate. I mean, if the guy snaps to attention and is, is nervous and, you know, whack, it, that may be one thing as opposed to a guy who snaps to attention and is is confident and relaxed. You can, you can, you can just almost smell it how the Marine you're talking to feels about his or her place. I agree. Uh, and, and, that, and that was, that was going to be my point, which was that an ounce of appearance is not worth a pound of performance. Yeah. So you could have the, the Marines or the ship could be spotless and everything else. That's not really indicative of what the command climate is like on that ship or the command climate is like in that Marine unit or how good they are at actually executing their mission, doing their job. It's interesting to me that people look at that. Yeah, I'll give you another example. When I took over my LPD, the USS Cleveland, we were at sea and I was used as an aviator to having like a whole tour, you know, like being the XO of the squadron before you become the CO. So I showed up like a week early to ride this ship. And it was like, you know, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> and so anyway, I rode it into Pearl Harbor. That was before deployment? It was in workups. Yeah, it was, workups, it was okay. during our workups and where the ship was pulling into Hawaii. And so as we're driving into Hawaii, I'm on the bridge observing. And I noticed that the captain was standing right next to the conning officer. And anytime the conning officer wanted to make any kind of course change, however small, he would look to the captain and say, sir, I want to come right a half a degree. And the captain would say, okay, or make it a full degree or, you know, what have you. And no decision was made on that bridge without the captain's concurrence, standing right next to the conning officer. And we had the change of command in Hawaii. And in our navigation brief prior to departing, I told the guys, I'm going to sit in my chair on the right side of the bridge. And you're going to drive the ship. And if you're 10 feet right of where I would be in the channel, but you're in a safe place, I'm not going to say a thing. And don't you dare look at me for approval of an order you have just given or are about to give or anything like that. I will slaughter you if you do that. You are driving the ship. I want you to have fun doing this. I want you to learn doing this. And you know that's just the way it's going to be. So we're pulling out. And it took a, about a month for my bridge team to break themselves of that habit. And the way I finally did it, I had to shock them. And so pulling into San Diego, I took my conning officer to the flying bridge where, you know, they've got those old tubes that you kind of <laughs> speak sure. through. Yeah, I remember those. And, and people like, you know, Captain, you can't do that. You know, we're, we're pulling into port in San Diego. Uh, it's like, no, we're going to con the ship all by ourselves. I'm going to stand up there, but I'm not going to say anything to him. He, I'm just going to be there because somebody's got to be there. And we're going to con this ship from up on the flying bridge and you guys keep doing what you're doing on the bridge. And of course it worked. And I think that's when they finally understood that I wanted them to have ownership of that process. And I wanted them to feel good about what they were doing. But old ha- those habits are hard to break in a, in a unit. I think emerging leaders want that level of responsibility. I don't think emerging leaders ever aspire to standing on a bridge and having to ask permission for every single half degree when they're conning the ship through the, through the channel. I do think that's such a powerful they point. They want to be trusted. I, they want to be trusted. They do. And, and they probably deserve some trust, no matter what rank they are. They're not going to deserve that trust until you give it to them and force them to take it. And then, then they start to realize, hey, this is actually fun. Yeah. I'm enjoying this. And you might even get them to stick around in the Navy if you're, not, uh, if you're careful. Yeah, we can talk about retention probably all day long. I think every service is dealing with the problem. And I think it all comes back. It's, it's rooted in some sort of 
when junior leaders get to their reenlistment point or their four or five year point as an officer where they decide to stay on active duty and do their next tour or not, I think they're looking back on their first four years and saying, was I sold a bill of goods that was delivered upon or not? In when I was told what a leader was, did I actually get to do that? Yes or no? And if no, I'm going to go out into the civilian world and I'm going to at least get compensated well for the work that I put into things. And I do think there's a little bit of a disconnect right now. Yeah, it's a little tricky. One of the things, and I've, I've said this to my son and many other young people, is when you first get to your first unit, it's all brand new and shiny. And you're like, hey, I've trained for this moment. I'm here. I'm finally a fleet dude. And that that's cool. And then over time, maybe a year or two, you start to see the warts that the organization has. And the key thing is that every single organization has those warts. And so the key for me is, is, you know, part of the maturing process is, okay, I'm not going to be one of the people who complains loudly about those warts. I'm going to write them down. And when I get a chance, I'm going to fix them. So there's, that is one component of is, is showing people that like, hey, you know, you can go over to the other side and do something else, but you're going to find warts there also. And then by the same token, token trying to create an environment for them that's not necessarily wart-free but that is a far more engaging, trustful, richly rewarding environment in which they're given opportunities to excel. You got a chance to keep people if you can do that. I totally agree. I think there's a lot of, a lot of work to be done and improvement that could be done very, very quickly on retention with just a few changes in, in leadership and risk assumption and trust and, and, and allowing people to, to actually lead and, and, and allow them to make mistakes. It's, you said something about the grass is always greener. It's really interesting. I just want to highlight on it real quick. Again, last weekend I was out with um, HMLA 267 for, they were celebrating their Marine Corps birthday early because they're deploying. And I was speaking with a, a female captain, a Cobra pilot. And at some point we got to the, we got to the conversation of, I said, you know, do you, have you seen it getting better in the Marine Corps from your perspective as a woman? Because from my perspective, 30 years ago, we didn't even have Cobra female Cobra pilots. We didn't even have fem female fighter pilots. And she said, yes, it, it, it is a lot better. And then she went on to describe some, some instances where she said, you know, some, some things still exist, but they're small and they, they're not career impacting. They're more just behavioral. And I said, look, I got to be honest with you. I said, if you think that it's different in the civilian world with women, you're wrong because my wife is a victim of the wage gap. I, I do think that there are still some issues out there and the grass is not necessarily greener on the other side for anybody in this, in this case, it happened to do with the perspectives of being a female in the, in the military. I actually do think that things have gotten better. Yeah. And I think the good news is that we're starting to get women into some senior ranks because, you know, it's, mm -hmm. we're an up or out organization. It wasn't going to happen right away. And I'm really, really looking forward to the fact that Sandra Magnus and I, my podcast partner are interviewing tomorrow, uh, Captain Amy Bauernschmidt who is the first woman to command a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, yeah, USS Abraham Lincoln. And, you know, she has pushed through that whole process. And I, interesting to hear what she will have to say ab about the very question you just asked. That's going to be uh, a fantastic podcast episode. I'll yeah. make sure uh, if, if it launches before this one does, I'll link to it in the show notes for sure. Okay. You've got so much experience, and, and we've been talking about a lot of your early on experience Personally, I think it's really hard to prepare yourself as a leader for the very first time. You have to put your foot down and say, no, we are not going to do that. And generally that time doesn't come when you can really think it through. It has to be instinctive. 
Can you help prepare young leaders for this situation by sharing a personal experience where you either saw it happening or you, in fact, had to do it yourself? I've already mentioned one, which was when we lost all of our money and I sort of put my foot down and said, we're not going to mope and be miserable. We're going to turn this into a positive. But I think to answer your question, I would use a third a third party, somebody who I uh, admire a lot, uh, Admiral Mike Mullen, who sort of did this a couple of times. One, in the wake of the USS Cole attack, I remember very clearly I was in Norfolk, Virginia. I think I was the XO of, a, of USS John C. Stennis. And he was the commander of Second Fleet, if I remember correctly. And he called in sort of an all commanding officers meeting, you know, that day, basically. And, and I think most of us were thinking, well, that really sucked that we that Cole got attacked. You know, we lost some wonderful sailors. Uh, this is a you know a real tragedy and all that kind of stuff. And and he got in front of us and said, "You people need to understand that the world has changed. We are not going to let this happen again." Uh, and he was very very forceful about that, and he was right. And another time Mullen did that was when uh, with the repeal of "Don't Ask, Don't Tell." You know, I remember when I was serving with General Powell, and this was a was something that came up. And Powell was very straightforward. And remember, this was again back in the early '90s. Society was not then where it is now. Young mm. people have changed a lot in the intervening 30 years. And Powell was like, "Hey, there's a lot of proud, brave young Americans out there who want to serve their country, who happen to be you know LGBTQ, but I've got to, I've got to worry about privacy. I can't support this." Well, 30 years later or 20 years later or whatever it was, Mullen realizes that society has changed, realizes that the young people coming into the service aren't really, don't really care about that much anymore. And he says, we in the military are going to support the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And Powell, of course, backed him uh, because Powell also realized that society had changed. And that was a really difficult thing. You can imagine that there still were parts of the military that you know resisted that says hey you know what's going on here but it, but in fact they they had the courage to say no we're not doing that uh, anymore so i you know it, i admire the guy for seeing reality and that's the first job of a leader is to really uh, see face reality and uh, and then do something about it yeah, it's the fascinating and a great example of that too i was a i was a commanding officer of an artillery battery when the repeal came down and it was this slide presentation that we were supposed to give everybody. And of course, as a reservist, there's just only so much time in the day. So I shortened the slide presentation down to a, a sentence or two. And I just said, listen, we treat everybody with dignity and respect here. And the first time I see somebody not doing that, you're in trouble. And I don't care what it is. That's, that's the rule. And one yeah. of the Marines came up to me afterwards and said, you know, sir, he goes, you know, our generation doesn't care about any of this, right? Yeah. I mean, we don't, we don't care. We, yeah. we know there's, there's five gay people in this battery. We don't care. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you know, back in the 1990s, it, it, they did care. Mm -hmm. And and then when Mullen uh, had the courage to sit in front of Congress and say, you know, we're not doing this anymore, that change had happened. So yeah. anyway, something that you have to be ready to do at all times as a leader is to uh, gather up your courage when you know you're doing the right thing, even if it's not necessarily popular, and put your foot down. Right. Yeah. We, we, I've talked in other podcast episodes about the meaning of courage and it's not always, it's not always constrained to the battlefield, battlefield courage. There's a lot of courage that takes place on an everyday basis. And I think that's an example of one. You were an instructor at Top Gun, which means I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you were, you were previous to that, a student of Top Gun. I was. So, so spent a lot of time out there at the, the Navy fighter weapon school, I think is the official name for it. Everybody knows it as Top Gun. 
And then you also had an opportunity to help the actual production of the movie Top Gun. So that's when that's when you were there. And I, I think everybody would love to hear a little story about that. But if you could also tell us a story about, I think when you're a student at Top Gun and then an instructor, you see a lot of teachable moments. And I'm wondering if there were any moments that you witnessed where there's that old saying there, but for the grace of God, walk I. Did you see anything either as a student or an instructor there where you were like, wow, thank God that wasn't me. And then you turned that into some sort of formative experience that you applied in the future as a leader. First of all, well, let's do the movie second, because uh, your, your question is a really, really important question. And I think the, the there, but for the grace of God, walk I was not so much when I was a Top Gun instructor, but it was a few years after that when I was a commanding officer of a squadron. And we had an unfortunate incident in that the first woman to be a F-14 pilot basically crashed and died. Uh, that she was Kara Holgreen, right? Kara Holgreen. And she was, this. she was in a uh, her final approach turn in the daytime to the carrier and she overshot just a little bit, but her inboard engine stalled, put her in a really, really difficult position. They ejected and her backseater survived and Kara did not. And of course, you know, this was at a time that the, the media in San Diego was all over, you know, see, I told you so. We never should have let women be pilots. You know, this is a disaster and, and look what happened. And I said to myself, my God, you know, we practice single engine all the time, but it's usually single engine off the catapult when the airplane's heavy. And, you know, that's a really tough time, particularly at night to lose an engine. You know, my God, we have never really practiced losing an engine on your approach turn, especially your inboard engine, which is on an F-14, not a very happy place to be. I'd better go check this out in the simulator with my JOs. And we went over and, and I told the guys what we were going to do to them. And still, uh, a good many of them still crashed. And so we, we talked through the, you know, how best to handle that situation and tried it again and everybody survived. I felt it was important enough that I got the word up to Comnav Pack, uh, the three-star, that I had done this. It was exactly what he needed in order to refute the critics. Uh, it was like, hey, you know, this squadron CEO went out and put his pilots in the simulator through the same thing. And, and, you know, they didn't do much better than she did. So that was a there but for the grace of God go I and damn it, do something about it moment for me. that was very, very instructive. Back to the movie, you know, yes, I was a Top Gun instructor, 83 to 87, when they made the first movie. It was really interesting. We had a, a guy named Bob Willard, who was our operations officer, who was kind of the point man for dealing with Paramount Pictures. And we almost didn't do the movie because the script, when we first saw it, was so bad. And Bob did a really good job working with uh, the uh, screenwriters and Paramount to get the script where it needed to be. And it was still, you know, summer movie, uh, a little bit dramatized and, you know, there's no such thing as a Top Gun trophy, that kind of thing. But uh, it did capture the the sort of overall feel of the place. And uh, I found that the, the, the flying parts of the movie were not all that exciting to be part of. It was really watching them make a movie on the ground. And I learned something from that. And I, I would see them shoot a scene and, you know, like, a classroom and a hangar in front of an airplane. I go, we don't do that. That's not realistic. These, <laughs> right. these people are idiots. This will never work. And then watching the movie and saying, you know, these people are actually brilliant cinematographers. And, and that sort of taught me the lesson that unless you're a real expert in a field, try not to be critical of the people who are, because they may actually know what they're doing. <laughs> and, uh, but it was, it was 
interesting to see the amount of money they were willing to spend just to get 10 seconds of film. Pretty interesting. Wow. That's, yeah, that is interesting. I guess when you think about boiling it all down, you could spend a lot of money on that. But you know what you said was really interesting. And I'm going to go backwards to the Carol Holcreen incident, but unless you're an expert, don't criticize. I think, I do think there's a, there is a propensity with young officers. And I think this is, this is a point I'm going to make about some self-realization of reconciling how good you think you are versus how good you actually are. There's a propensity as a junior emerging leader to always criticize hire, you know, hire's all messed up. Why is hire having us do this? Hire doesn't know what they're doing. When, when the exact opposite is probably taking place. They know exactly what they're doing. You just don't understand it. And this goes back to what we were talking about 20, 30 minutes ago, which is that, you know, the power of why and why am I doing this? And sometimes you know, and sometimes you don't. That is a very impactful, crystallizing moment to, for you, it sounds like this, don't criticize people unless you're an expert. Probably a great sage leadership lesson for a young listener to take away, which is try harder to understand why, because maybe your misinterpretation of why you're doing something and why you're being critical of hire is grounded in your own immaturity and lack of experience rather than somebody else being messed up. Yeah. And then try, if, you, if they're not telling you the why, try to, try to empathetically figure out the why. Why is this per- person making this decision that I don't like? Let me try to put myself in their shoes and see what kind of pressures are on them and what experiences they've had that are leading them to make this decision and see if you can't you know, and, and then, you know, when everybody around you is complaining about it, just shut up, you know, and learn from it, you know, execute with integrity, courage, humility, learn from it, and then get on down the road. Complaining right. never did anybody any good. I think going back to the Carol Holgreen incident and then reflecting back on the conversation that I had with the um, female captain last week, who was the Cobra pilot, I think you know, that was 30 years ago. And I, I remember exactly where I was when I heard about that incident, because I was on San Clemente Island and we were doing naval gunfire when the, so the accident was, was relatively close to where I was at the, at that point out there in the Pacific. I think that when you fast forward 30 years, the military, every single branch of the military has made tremendous strides. And that doesn't mean that we don't have more work to do because there's always more work to do. Yeah. I think any woman you talk to right now would say, you know, they're having to still overcome uh, things that we men don't even see. Mm-hmm. I give them a lot of credit for, you know, uh, and, you know, one of the things I've, I've always been a big supporter of women engineers and, you know, uh, Georgia Tech and in the Navy and elsewhere. And one of the reasons why I like them is they feel like they have to work twice as hard as anybody else. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hey, you know, and I'll support them till the cows come home, but I really want that hard worker. Uh, right. So. Yeah, it's like the joke about being in, in the civilian world when you're a business owner. You say you want every single one of your employees to have a really huge mortgage so they have an incentive to come to work and work hard every single day. Yeah. But yeah, so thank, thanks for sharing that, that story. Can you go back to some of those early moments that we've been talking about for the past hour and tell us about how those early moments shaped tough or important decisions in your years as an admiral? Yeah, I think... It's not just as an admiral, it says the whole way coming up through the ranks. You know, you're, we're all a product of, of, of our early beginnings. I think a couple of things that really stuck with me was the absolute need for attention to detail. And it's sort of a theme in naval aviation is that, you know, attention to, to detail. But, you know, it, it's easy sometimes for a leader to get into a, into a job and say, okay, now I'm the leader. 
it's time for me to just make the decisions and everybody else carry everything out. When in fact, as the leader, you got to be the hardest working person in the organization. And that doesn't mean micromanagement, by the way. It might be mean getting micro information so you know what's going on. But but you know, this gets back to the trust issue we talked about. It's not necessarily micromanagement, but attention to detail and and just constantly from a secure point of view, asking yourself, what am I missing? What could be going wrong? What detail could could really burn us here. So that attention to detail is something that I carried with me from those early years. And I think something else that, that I learned, one of the most important things I learned as a young officer, and, and this is, I think, not unusual for a naval aviator who spends most of the first two or three years, uh, he or she is in the service learning to fly and not learning to lead is when you suddenly find yourself thrust into a fleet squadron and you now are given, you know, power plants, branch division or whatever, and you got 20 sailors theoretically working for you and you have no idea what they're doing. They're changing engines, but you know, you couldn't change an engine if anybody, you know, if, if they paid you. Is learning at that very early age that if you're going to lead people, you have to give a crap about them. And they're not just automatons out there changing engines. They're real people with real concerns and real ambitions. And I think that the ground services are much better at this than the air services because you are immediately thrust into a people world at a very early age point in your career and and, and formally leading people rather than sort of being stuck into a power plants branch job or whatever. But I, th- I think learning at an early age that, that you just really have to invest yourself in your people is something I wish I had learned earlier. And that when I did learn it, stuck with me for the rest of my career. It was a very, very important part of my leadership life. So follow up question there, and this may be a hard one because this goes back to my concern that there is a gap between the legacy definition of caring and then the, this generation's understanding of caring. What are some things that a young leader needs to do in order to show that they do give a crap? Because I think that that's important. Yeah. And it's not, it's not so much showing, it's actually doing, right? And I, I know mm-hmm. you meant that when you said it. But I think, first of all, without being sort of nosy and intrusive, just the basic learning their names and knowing where they're from, you know, whether they have a family, those are, you know, if you can walk up to, you know, Corporal Jones and say, you know, hey, I hear, uh, you know, back in Arkansas, you know, they had a great football game yesterday, you know, or, or you know, hey, how's, how's you, I hear you have a newborn, you know, how's she doing? Those things. And it's not just showing that you care. It's actually genuinely caring about that kid and where he's from and his baby daughter. You know, you, you have to be genuine in this. You can't just make it up. And then, you know, beyond that, of course, there are things like understanding where they are in their professional development. Uh, how are they viewed by their NCOs? You know, those sorts of things and just really getting in there. And again, it's more important for the ground forces to be sure, but it's important for everybody. And as you get older and older, you know, there's a span of control. You know, some people say you can really only ever really know about a hundred people or, you know, some people are remarkable at that and other people are not. I had to work at it. But as you get to be, you know, a flag officer, a general officer, you know, those, those people are a more senior group, right? Uh, right? But you're still trying to understand who they are, how they're doing, where they came from, what their fears are, what their aspirations are, and how you can help them at the same time you're holding them to that high standard. 
I know this is going to seem like a really microscopic comment, but I think it's important. But did you ever notice as you ascended through the ranks, did you ever notice that there was a ensuing balance of life issue with the men and women that you were leading? And I'll just make up an example. If the boss, if the admiral sticks around till 1800 at night at work, then that means the squadron commanders are probably sticking around till 1900 at work. And then did you ever see that as a, the balance of life and the, Hey, you know, like as, as a senior leader, when you are in the spaces, that means everybody's in the spaces and your E3s may not be going home till nine o'clock at night and they have wives and kids and things. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you, uh, if I can remember them all three stories on that. Okay, great. One, when I was the captain of USS Cleveland, I learned to surf and my next door neighbor was a former offensive tackle for University of California and a huge guy. He said, Hey, you surf. And I said, well, I tried it once when I was a kid, but didn't do it go so well. He goes, we'll try it for two weeks. And if you don't like it, then you know, we'll quit. So we got up early in the morning and I actually loved it. So I would go surfing every morning before I went to work on the ship when it was in port in San Diego. And I would show up at eight o'clock and I got, I had plenty of work to do during the day. I got everything done. I needed to get done. It wasn't, it wasn't a horribly difficult experience, but it made such a difference to my crew because they got there early because they had to get going on the day. If I had gotten there at the same time they did, they would have gotten there another couple hours prior. And I didn't want right. them doing that. You know, we were in port for heaven's sake, you know, it's hard enough when you're underway. So, so that was one sort of clue there that I kind of stumbled into because I learned how to surf. Later, when I was after command of, of uh, Enterprise, I went and worked in a job where the boss would stay very late. And very often, you know, and he would say, oh, you guys go ahead and go home. But we couldn't go home till he went home, right? You just don't. Right. And he would be there talking to a real estate agent, you know, or something like that, or, you know, some other personal thing is like, well, we're, well, here we are, we're stuck here until he, he left. And I said, okay, file that one away. And then when I got to be, uh, you know, that all kind of came to a head when I was the, the J5, the director of strategic plans and policy on the joint staff. And that was a very hard job. And I would get to work at five o'clock every morning. And I told my staff, you are prohibited from coming to the office until seven. You can come in at seven if you want. I will not allow you to come in this door until seven o'clock because it, I had starting at five in the morning, I had about an hour's worth of just reading I had to do. I don't need mm -hmm. people hanging around the office when I'm reading. And then I had a meeting every morning that I had to go to that was called by the director of the joint staff at six o'clock in the morning. My staff doesn't need to be sitting in the office while I'm off in the bowels of the Pentagon in a meeting. It was just no reason for them to come in at seven. And I also told them, I, you are prohibited from coming in on a weekend unless there's a real emergency. You know, we're at war or something like that. Sometimes I might come in and do some reading. By the way, one of the best things that ever happened to me in that job was when Stanley McChrystal, who was the, the doggone director of the joint staff who was holding that six o'clock meeting in the first place, <laughs> said... <laughs> do you guys have Cipernet at home? And we all went, are you kidding? We can't have Cipernet at home. That's like at home. Uh, we're not on, in quarters. And he goes, oh, well, at SOCOM, we have Cipernet at home. And uh, so we'll get you Cipernet. And so what he did, and this was all perfectly legal, we had a safe bolted into our basement floor, a big, big old safe. And in it was kept a little tiny card about the size of a credit card that we were able to plug into a laptop that they gave us 
that meant we had secure connectivity with the Pentagon. And I was actually able to work from home on weekends so I could go cook pancakes for my boys, do some work, go to one of their football games, do some work, you know, that kind of thing. And that, that, was, that was a leader who, who, who was sensing that quality of life balance in his subordinates and did something about it. Uh, it was really cool to be able to do that. Groundbreaking. And I think that you didn't say the word courage, but I'm going to use it, which is when, when you see creativity and things like that, like the, the General McChrystal example, I mean, it's hard to say like, hey, this general officer was being courageous. But I think from an administrative perspective and, a, and a, an institution perspective, that was pretty courageous to say, we're going to figure out a way to get people cybernet from home. If you take that down a couple lengths or, or units levels, let's just say a, a battalion or a squadron or a wing or something or regiment, I think there is an inherent responsibility as a senior subordinate to a commander that if the, if the boss is sitting around at five o'clock with his door closed in his office because he's talking to the real estate agent or whatever the example was that you used, I think there's a responsibility for, for junior leaders to knock on the door and say, hey, Skipper, it's five o'clock. I know you're working on some personal stuff, but uh, is it okay if I secure the Marines or secure the sailors for the evening? It's, you know, it's, it's 1700. I think if you don't have that sort of relationship with your subordinates where they can come in and say, I'm observing something outside of your office with the door closed and it's impacting every single person here. Can I take some action? I think that is courage. And I think it's expected as a junior leader. And I don't know if enough of that is going on when you see people just wandering around at 1800. Got to say to yourself, who, who is saying like, let's get these guys and gals out of here? Yeah, I think it's, I think you're exactly right. Especially at the more junior levels of command, battalion, mm -hmm. you know, brigade, regiment. When you get up to be, you know, really, really senior, sometimes interspersed with the real estate calls are, uh, hey, get a hold of so-and-so for me. And it's actually an important call. <laughs> right. so, but that he probably could have done from home, but he did, chose to do it from the office. So I, I agree with you. And I think this generation has that moxie uh, to be able to, to say, hey, sir, you know, uh, unless you got something else for me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take off. I think a lot, of, a lot of leaders, I mean, the guy was telling us to go home anyway, but we were just, you know, that's the other thing is you've got to force yourself to actually do, do that. Mm -hmm. if, even if you're given permission to do it rather than being, you know, a little insecure, maybe about sticking around. Right. I experienced this at a very small level at my, at my firm, because there's only 10 people that work there. But if I'm sitting there at five o'clock and someone else is there, the first thing I'm doing is saying, what are you doing here? What are you working on? Is it imperative that it's done before nine o'clock tomorrow morning? Sometimes people will say, I just need a little bit of peace and quiet. And if I go home, my kids and all this other stuff, and I get that, but I'm always asking people and I just think that that's some, some leadership situational awareness that, that leaders at all levels need to be aware of and say, can, can I get these people home and back with their family and create a balanced life? Because I actually think that is one of the major connectors between the legacy definition of caring and the, the current interpretation of caring is we say as, as a senior generation that we care about our people, yet we're, we're, making, we're not letting them go home until, and be with their family until later in the yeah. evening. That, that balance of life, I think, is, is a critical connector between the, the, the legacy and the expectation of caring. Yeah. You definitely don't want to keep people around just to keep them around. And, mm -hmm. and uh, when you consider some of the uh, operational tempo our, our units have, and they're away from home quite a lot, it just makes sense whenever you can to get them home. As long as you, know, you got to keep the standard high. The work gets right. done, but we're not going to hang around when, when it's done waiting for some Mr. Uh, Muckety Muck to leave. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
we, we got sidetracked a little bit, but I, I have a follow-up question from your Top Gun time. And then I want to get into some of your roles in the, as commanders of ship. But how, when you go back to a squadron after you graduate Top Gun, or, or even more specifically, after you're an instructor at Top Gun, how does your role as a leader in the squadron change? Yeah, so the, the purpose of uh, Top Gun, the whole central philosophy of Top Gun is that you're training the trainer. When I was b- back in the day for myself, it was you were chosen about halfway through your first tour as a pilot and you would go attend the class for five or six weeks and then come back. And for the remainder of your tour, you would be the sort of expert, the training officer, the, the, the recognized uh, you know, authority. It's changed a little bit now if, I, and it, if I've got it correct, you know, after your first tour, now you might go to Top Gun and then go back to another fleet squadron in a new role, not during your first tour, but sort of a second tour as that training officer. And I think that's actually a better approach than what we had because you get more out of the person after they've been through the class. But the whole point uh, is that you go back and you are now expected to raise all boats, right? We can't send every pilot in the Navy and Marine Corps, every tactical jet pilot through the Top Gun course. We, we have to rely on spreading the word with those graduates. And in, in some cases, there's a little jealousy there. You know, how come I wasn't the one who got picked to go to Top Gun? You know, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to show you a little vicious compliance. You know, I'm going to show that this person really isn't as good as they think they are. So you have to go back with a considerable dose of humility after you've been through the class. And that's one of the things that's taught in the class is, is how you can train people in this, uh, these amazingly talented people who many of whom have large egos how you can train them while keeping the who out of it, uh, keeping the ego out of it. And from the first debrief of a flight that you have as a student at Top Gun, it's pretty well drilled into you that you're going to try to keep the who out of it. So for example, let's say you're in a one versus one air combat maneuvering training flight. And, you know, it would be easy to say, well, you know, why did you go up in the vertical you know, and what were you thinking and all that. But instead, we would use the term like, so what was the F-18 thinking when it pulled up into the vertical? What, how was it evaluating what the F-5 was doing? Sort of taking the, depersonalizing it. And mm-hmm. sounds very simple, but that and many other things uh, led to, you know, sort of an ego-free debrief. And that's one of the reasons why our Navy, Marine Corps, and Air Force pilots are so much better than 99% of the other Air Forces in the world is because we're brutally honest with ourselves, but we also try to keep, keep it to a you know, tactical or tactful uh, debriefing style. So that was, that's the, the number one thing you do as you go back to a fleet squadron is you're the, now the, the graduate level trained person who can raise this, the tactical standard in the squadron. And, and I don't have a lot of current experience here, so I could be wrong when I say this, but if I recall my time on active duty, I will tell you that I think the aviation community does a much better job of debriefing and having the maturity to accept a debrief than the ground side does. And I don't know if that's just because you grow up getting evaluated every single time you take a flight, but there could definitely be some improvements made, I think, unless something's dramatically changed inside the last decade on the ground side in terms of doing hot washes and debriefs. Yeah. I don't have a lot of insight for you because I have not spent a a lot of time. Yeah. It was more of a statement than a question. But it's it's one of the, sometimes, you know, the smallest thing can kick off a culture 
and organization, large organization that lasts, that works and that lasts forever. And, you know, when Top Gun was founded back during the Vietnam War, when we were losing, had an unacceptable loss rate to these, you know, North Vietnamese MiG-17 and MiG-21 pilots, one of the founding principles was the the culture of uh, humility, of, you know, truth and keeping the who out of it. And that, I think, maybe infected the entire because that you know you're training the trainer right and you're spreading the word and i think that may have infected the whole community and there's still people who have big egos who don't get it <laughs> but sure but but most of it is okay we're going to go you know through every little bit of detail and one of the things that's really made it even more powerful is the ability to record everything that you do in the cockpit uh, there are no secrets now <laughs> right <laughs> and right. and you know you you just have to own up uh, and maybe throw a dollar in a kitty for a, a beer kitty when you make a mistake, like you call a shot that wasn't a valid shot or something like that. Yeah, it's. I think I think it's becoming a lot more transparent on the ground side too. When uh, the camera technology and the GPS tracking technology, a, a, a battalion commander in the infantry can say, "Why was the uh, first fire team leader for third squad and second platoon wearing a boonie cover out in the field?" I mean, they just uh, every, everything is becoming very transparent. You've had a really interesting career because you were you were a career you were a naval aviator your entire career, but at some point, and I'm assuming it was at the 06 level, you were selected to assume command of the USS Cleveland, which was an LPD class, the old LPD class. I think Cleveland was LPD seven. Do I remember that? Because I had a friend of mine that was yes. on it back. Yeah. Okay. And so when I was deployed, I was on, on the Juno, so a very similar class. Was the Cleveland a flag configured ship? Yes, was it, it was. Uh, okay. So same thing. So, so is the Juno. So I, I can close my eyes and see myself on that ship. I can also see all those Navy officers, the junior officers on that ship. I mean, there's, there's driving the ship, there's engineering, there's navigation, there's maintenance, there's the, the Chang, there's the air boss. There's, I mean, there's, there's a lot that firefighting damage control, things like that. And as an aviator, you probably didn't grow up working in any of those divisions or anything like that. Now, all of a sudden here you are, you're the commanding officer of, of an amphib as a, as a career aviator. And I'm wondering what some of the leadership lessons you learned after a career in the cockpit, what, what were those that you were able to then use when you assumed the command of a traditional amphibious warship? Yeah, good question. Well, first of all, I felt well prepared to command that warship, partly because I grew up sailing on San Diego Bay. So I understood wind and current and all those kinds mm -hmm. of things. But, you know, bef before you go to a ship like that, it's, which is called your deep draft, it's kind of like your last training wheels before you take a carrier. You've been through nuclear power school, so you have an, an you have in the course of about a year and a half or two years, you have developed an incredible engineering, you know, ship engineering capability. Yes, it's nuclear, but it's a lot of other things as well. So you, you develop such confidence in your ability to assess an engineering situation and do the right thing. That that is very helpful when you go to one of the oldest ships in the Navy, LPD-7. And by the way, my father commanded an LPD that was younger than the one I commanded. He had LPD-17, really? which was oh, USS wow. Trenton. So I went to an older ship than my dad had. Then you're the XO of a nuclear-powered carrier. So even though you're you're kind of running the ship, you're still spending time on the bridge. You're still drinking in everything you see on underway replenishments and, and mm -hmm. navigating on the high seas and th that sort of thing. So you're getting, 
a, a good knowledge buildup, and then they throw you in to be the captain of your deep draft, which in my case was the steam in Cleveland. Uh, great. It was one of my favorite tours, partly because it's so seamanship intensive having an LPD. You know, you're constantly doing amphibious operations and flight operations and and you name it. And, and we deployed and did all of those things and more. But I went into it uh, fairly confident that I could could command this ship and that I could lead the ship. And there were an uncounted number of things that we did, both to reconfigure the ship that were sort of out of the box things we did that were really fun. We, we got, no LPD has ever had Cipronet, uh, at least the old ones. And we put Cipronet on our LPD. That was a, you know, a little risky, but we pulled it off legally and, and it really made a difference later on during our deployment to the Arabian Gulf. And I can tell you that story in a bit if you want. The other thing I think was an attitude I knew that the that the Navy amphibious community and the Marine community sort of had this attitude of we're supposed to hate each other. Let there be conflict. And I went in there and said, hey, I'm just a dumb fighter pilot. I want to make this thing work. So Marines, the answer is yes. Now what's the question? And <laughs> they really appreciated that. We had the best. I had the Artie battery and this, uh, the boat company aboard and a few other cats and dogs. And we got along really, really well. We called ourselves the Millennium Falcon to the USS Boxer, which we called the Death Star. Right. Because they had conflict on Boxer. Sure. <laughs> we sure. did not. That's why nobody wants to be uh, on I think it. everybody in the whole everybody in the whole amphibious ready group and the Mew were jealous. Uh, they all wanted to be on Cleveland simply because we we just, you know, worked very closely together as a team. And when one side needed something, if I needed it, a bucket brigade during an unrep to to move groceries, the Marines were always there. And uh, if they needed me to do something, and we always, we tried very hard to make sure their birthing was in the best possible condition for them when they moved aboard. And then we asked them to hold it to a high standard for us while they were there. So anyway, it was a, it was a fabulous experience. Really That's great. I, I love hearing that because I can relate to being on an LPD. We, same thing. We had, um, we had the boat company on there. We did not have the artillery battery. We had Navy SEAL platoon and force recon and other people, but we all loved being on the LPD. Our skipper was, he was a traditional SWO captain, but he had done time in Vietnam as a naval gunfire officer. So he had a combat action ribbon. He had served with the Marines. He knew. And very life cool. was very enjoyable on that LPD. I remember the air conditioning wasn't that great. So he let us wear our, our workout gear all the time. We didn't have to be in uniform 24 seven. It, it was just, it was a great environment. You went over to the Death Star and it was just, it was awful. It's, I was so thankful to be on that small ship. So I, I can, I can relate to everything that you were saying. What are the opportunities that you would highlight as important to a young pilot who may choose to become the skipper of a conventional warship as an 06 and then kind of go on to that flag rank like you? What are some of the early opportunities that young pilots need to be focusing on and leadership skills they need to be developing? You know, the way this works is when you're done with your uh, squadron CO tour, and you know, it has to be a, essentially a carrier-based squadron. It can be a helicopter squadron, but you know, carrier-based squadron. You sort of have three tracks. One is you can go be an air wing commander and get in that pipeline. Another is you can go be a nuclear carrier CO and get in that pipeline. And then the third pipeline is very important jobs that are not command jobs necessarily. For instance, you can go be an air boss on a carrier or you know, a navigator or any of, of a number of other things. So for the, for the nuclear carrier route, you go 18 months of nuclear power school, probably 24 months as, a deep, or as an XO of a carrier, 
24 months as a deep draft captain, LPD or something like that. And then if you're fortunate and you did okay, you'll get to be the captain of a carrier. So it's a long pipeline. One of the best things about that pipeline, even though it's very, very hard because nuclear power school is a very, very hard school and there's a lot of sea time, is that the first time I set foot in the Pentagon as an 06 was one year before I made flag. So I spent oh wow the vast majority of my 06 time operational, which is, you know, who's not going to love that, right? I was going to say, why doesn't everybody <laughs> yeah. want to do this route, right? <laughs> well, because it's hard. And a lot of yeah. people don't want to go to, they'd rather be an air wing commander and keep flying, who wouldn't, uh, rather than go uh, be a carrier seal. I, I always, you know, from an early, say, department head-ish age, decided that I wanted to do the nuclear pipeline because it was a new challenge. It was something hard. It was something, you know, and then, and the notion of if, you know, I got, if I didn't mess up, if I got lucky, you know, whatever, being able to actually command a nuclear carrier, I really looked up to these guys. They had been through a lot. And, and now you're in charge of a 95,000 ton behemoth with 5,000 people aboard. In essence, on the carrier, there are three things you have to be really good at to be a carrier CO. One of them is you have to understand flight operations like the back of your hand. Number two, you have to understand the nuclear propulsion plant perfectly. I mean, the, the standards there are incredibly high. And then fourth, you have to be able to navigate a ship safely on the high seas to include underway replenishments and you know, move, moving in and out of port and restricted going through straits, transits and all that. And the interesting thing about a carrier is there are plenty of people on the carrier who are expert in one of those things, maybe two. But mm-hmm. nobody, you, there is only one person on the carrier who knows all three, and that's the captain. Uh, the XO is getting close. The XO understands the nuke part and understands the aviation part, but doesn't quite have the navigation on the high seas thing down yet. But you as the captain are the only one who has all three, and that's an amazing place to be. So that's what I wanted. And so I think as a, as a, to get to the essence of your question, as a young person who might aspire to do something like that, you know, you just have to to learn as much as you possibly can. And I, I you know, obviously uh, learn as much as you can about how the flight deck works and how the air operations work. I mean, there's more to it than just being a pilot. So being deeply curious uh, about that. And then I would say as a department head, as a squadron CO, it, you know, you're, you're often asked to go up on the bridge and get this qualification for conning alongside during an underway replenishment, which is really not that big a deal because you get a lot of support, but actually going up there when the ship's pulling in and out of port or when it's doing some difficult evolution and just being there and watching the captain, watching the bridge team and seeing if, if, if this is something that you, you like and to kind of study it and see how it works. Those just, that's about all you can do to prepare yourself. And then, you know, you pretty much have to have an engineering degree of some sort to make it through nuclear power school. So that's sort of a given. Okay, but it's a it's a hell of a track. Uh, I would do it over again in a heartbeat, even though it was very hard. What point does an officer, a naval aviator officer in the Navy, at what point in their career, what rank should they be figuring that out? In other words, or what is the point of no return? Where hey, if you wanted to be a carrier, you just didn't you didn't check the right blocks, and you're you're just not going to do it. Well, it's going to be based on your fitness report as a the commander of your squadron. Okay. And, so and the that's where they, your squadron is kind of the first. That's where, that's where they, they pick you to do okay. this. 
And so it, it, it makes sense before then to decide whether this is something you want to position yourself for. And you can tell your air wing commanders like, hey, you know, I'm kind of interested in this pipeline if it, if it comes up. But you've got to get, a, you know, probably a number one or a number two uh, fit rep, maybe a number three in your air wing uh, mm-hmm. in order to get into that track. So they're looking for people who have the technical acumen because they've got an engineering degree, people who have demonstrated success in command with a number one or number two fit rep. And then, you know, people who are willing to do it, you can say no, but you're done at that point. If they pick you for it and you say no, they're not going to go, oh, then we'll make you an air wing commander. You know, that doesn't happen. Right. If you're picked, you either do it or not. What is the attrition rate for somebody? Because you're a senior officer at that point. What's your attrition rate out of nuclear power school? I'd say we probably lose one out of 10. Okay. The good thing about nuclear power school, even though it's very hard, they're very supportive. As long as they know you're working as hard as you can, whether you're doing well or not, they want you to be working as hard as you can. Right. As long as you're doing that, they will, they will do, bend over backwards to support you. But some people just can't, can't do it or, or just, right. just choose not to do it. Okay. And then yeah, there's attrition. Be- you, know, after you can be a carrier uh, XO and not make it to your deep draft. You can be a deep draft CO and not be screened for a carrier. So there's, I, I'd say maybe seven out of 10 people who enter the program actually get a carrier. So question for you, going back to Cleveland, can you think of a great moment in leadership from when the time that you were a skipper and share that vignette with, with the listeners about leadership underway? I think, I think leadership underway is fascinating. Yeah. One of the things that we were doing when I was deployed to the uh, Arabian Gulf was interdicting Iraqi oil smugglers. So we did a couple of things. One is I got uh, a couple of boarding teams qualified, which was people that what? You know, that's what the SEALs do. And I went, yeah, but I want to have a couple of qualified boarding teams. But the actual operations themselves were really complex. I, I call it like an all night long night trap on a carrier uh, it, because we had our SEALs were out doing the interdiction. We had a landing craft that was out. It was uh, sort of a mothership for the, for the SEALs on their rigid hull inflatable boats ribs. Mm-hmm. We had a Marine helicopter debt aboard that was flying. And we also were flying UAVs, Pioneer UAVs, which you're familiar with as a Marine. It was the, like the very sure. first ever UAVs. This was back right. in the, in the um, when was it? Late, late 90s, I guess. Yeah, it was the, the and, old VMO. So it was, I remember they had them. These were actually Navy UAVs, but they were Marine. The Marines had basically created the Pioneer program. And we were doing this at night in very shallow water. I only had about three or four feet under the keel with dows, with fishing lines out everywhere. And it was just, it was just horribly intense. And, you know, training the crew before we did that to be able to succeed in that environment of that very high complexity environment was uh, very rewarding uh, to watch them execute it. It was exhausting, but it was, it was cool. And one of the things that a really interesting moment during that time, uh, and this goes back to the Cypernet thing, we had a UAV out. There was a, a Iraqi radar site on the Alpha Peninsula that was, everybody was worried about. It was a surface search radar because we knew they had Silkworm missiles, right? Everybody was trying to find it, but they were using still photography. And we had the UAV that had a video camera and we found it right away because we could see this thing that was fairly well hidden, but the, the antenna had to rotate and we could see the motion. So we found the radar before anybody else did. Imagine, you know, so you're a, a, you know, an LPD crew and you do something that nobody else is able to do. That's pretty cool. So 
the very next day we're out and we're in, we're out there driving around with our, our UAV and our UAV finds a surf, an Iraqi surface to surface missile on the beach, on the Al-Fal Peninsula. And it's like, we're right in the heart of the envelope. And it's like, holy crap, sound general quarters, get the heck out of there in case they shoot this thing at us. And so we took still pictures off of the UAV feed and because we had Cipronet, and only because we had Cipronet, because we had done this during workups, we sent the pictures to the fleet commander of this missile. And so they went, holy, you know, we never knew that an LPD had Cipronet, but thank you for the pictures. We got to do something about this. And the very next day, Enterprise, by coincidence, happened to be in the Gulf with my friend Marty Chanik as the captain. They uh, dispatched a couple of F-18s to blow this thing up. You know, they, were, they flew a mission over Iraq, and then on their way out, they were supposed to drop a bomb on this missile. So uh, I put a UAV up to watch this because I, I wanted to see the missile blow up. I had a, a young female State Department rep on the boat, and I asked her if she wanted to watch. And she was like, yeah, you know, do they show up on time? You know, is this really, you know, kind of dismissive. And it, it was, TOT was 11 o'clock. And so uh, she comes in, and at 11 o'clock, you know, we're sitting there watching, waiting for this missile to blow up. And an Iraqi pickup truck drives by, stops at the missile, and the guy gets out and is checking out his missile. And I'm going, oh, my God, we're going to blow this missile up, and we're going to blow this poor guy up, too. And the State Department rep is going to be really upset because she's going to be watching a guy die on my video feed. Oh, well, he gets back in the pickup truck at like 20 seconds before 11 and drives off. And he's about 150 yards up the road, this dirt road, and this missile just evaporates. It's just a huge explosion because these guys were like, tick, 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 you know, at 11 o'clock, bang, it goes. Right. And, and, you know, big sequence of events, guy gets out of his truck, looks back, you know, like, holy cow, what just happened to my missile? And he gets back in his truck and drives away. The, the, the State Department rep is like, eyes like the biggest saucers. And I now had a precious thing. I had a videotape of something that this humble little amphibious ship did that mattered, blew up and, you know, caused an Iraqi missile to be blown up. And I was able to show it to my crew. And you wow. want to see a crew that was sky high. Yeah. From that, it was really, really neat. That's fantastic. Yeah. It was a great tour. And another story from that tour is, you know, we had no TV connectivity and we were out there while the Super Bowl was being played. Atlanta played somebody. I can't remember who it was. I wanted my crew to be able to watch the Super Bowl, and I wanted them to do it not knowing who won. So I told my radio men, I will take you to Captain's Mast if you hear who won the Super Bowl and tell anybody on the crew. It's okay for you to know, but don't tell anybody on the crew. Meanwhile, I had, I had taken a case of Baskin-Robbins chocolate chip ice cream with me on the deployment. I drove in one of our, our uh, uh, Marine Corps ribs, you know, the little rubber boats, over to the Death Star boxer. And they threw down the videotape to the game and I threw up uh, a couple of cartons of Basket Robbins ice cream and we went back. And because, you know, the game was played in the middle of the night in the in Arabian Gulf. So the next day we had a wonderful steel beach picnic with the game. Nobody knew the score and, and, you know, the crew got to enjoy the Super Bowl. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that. But, you know, those, those are little special touches that, um, that, you know, people, it makes a difference when you're in this monotony of a deployment. Yeah, it does. And, you know, I remember back, you know, on the LPD, no email. We didn't have TV, anything. You had the VCR tapes. That was all you had. It was kind of following up the same question. How about same question, aircraft carrier CO? As far as uh, leadership lessons? 
Right. So, you know, you're, you're looking back at, at the, those crystallizing moments when you're in command, any good vignettes to share with, with leaders about how some of the things that you had learned throughout an entire career of, of flying and the time on the Cleveland, were there any culminating moments where everything just all came together for you as a CEO or, or any experience or stories about your time in command there? There are plenty. I've, I've got good stories from being the XO of a carrier CEO and also the, the strike group commander was probably my most fun in terms of creative effort tour that I had, but specifically as the captain of, of enterprise, many important moments, one of which was uh, literally watching on the bridge as we were exiting the Arabian Gulf as 911 attacks occurred in New York, and then going through the process that resulted in us needing to head up towards Pakistan and to be on station the very next morning, ready to fight. And we were, you know, we had finished our deployment. We were on our way to South Africa. We had buttoned up all the airplanes, you know, on the flight deck and that moved a whole bunch down to the, the hangar deck. And we really weren't well configured for combat operations at that point. And we need to overnight do this. And it's one of those things that happens to leaders that are, are kind of funny. You know, in order to get to the station that we needed to be at the next morning, we had to Average, go 25 knots. Our navigators were telling me 25 knots. But in order to be able to be ready to fight, we had to do a whole bunch of elevator moves to get our airplanes back up to the, to the roof and, and configured, you know, get, the, get the, the planes ready to fight. And you only move hell of, uh, elevators at 20 knots. I've got two people handing me a problem with no solution. You know, Captain, we got to go 25 knots to get there. Captain, we got to go less than 20 knots in order to move elevators. And it was one of those so very simple things where, you know, usually only the leader sees this and it, it seems trivial at the time. It's like, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go 30 knots. <laughs> and then when it comes time to move elevators, we'll have everything all set up. We'll have all four elevators ready to go. We'll slow down to 20 knots. We'll move the elevators down, move the elevators back up, and then we'll accelerate back up to 30 knots and we'll average 25 knots over the course of the evening between, you know, 30 and 20. And, you know, it seems so trivial, but, you know, people will bring the leader the problem. And very often the leader's the only one who sees through to the solution. And that's one of the things that leaders are paid to do. So that was kind of a, a little bit of an anecdote. Yeah, I love that uh, story. About my time on Enterprise. Yeah. Another interesting anecdote from when I was a carrier strike group commander, and this is, this is a great Marine Corps and Navy story. As I mentioned before, we were flying five out of every seven days and then we decided to fly every day. But there were still those about once a week or uh, one week out of every month or five days out of every month where we would go down to uh, the UAE, to Jabal Ali, pull into port, and it would be a break for the crew, and it would be a chance to do maintenance on the airplanes and on the ship. And I felt really bad because, as I said before, this was a really tough time for our troopers on the ground. And here we are, we're going to go down and drink beer in uh, UAE. So I was looking for a way to stay in the fight while we were down there. And I came up with the idea of putting a detachment of Hornets ashore at Al-Assad Air Base, because that's where the Marine Corps was flying its Hornets out of in Iraq. And so I uh, started to nurture this idea. I flew an F-14 into Al-Assad and sat down with a wonderful Marine named Boomer Milstead, oh, who sure. was the, uh, the commander there. And I knew I was going to like Boomer right away when I walked into his office and his coffee table had nothing but longboard, longboard surfing magazines on it. So it's like, okay, I, I know I've got a connection with this guy. And I said, Boomer, how about we put 
four hornets ashore in Al-Assad. And he goes, well, your hornets are a little different from mine, but I think we can make it work. Let's work together on this. And it was hard. I had to get a maintenance crew, you know, a detachment ready, not only to go ashore off of an aircraft carrier, but they had to understand all the force protection pieces and all how you survive and how you maintain airplanes in the desert and all that kind of thing. But we got it all together. And about a day or so before the debt was scheduled to go ashore and we were going to go down to Dubai for our port visit, Boomer and I each get these sort of inquiries from very high levels. And from mine, it was like, what does this say about the relevance of naval aviation if all you have to do is put airplanes ashore to support troops? And Boomer gets a call. It was like, what does this say about the relevance of Marine Corps aviation if all you have to do is send Navy airplanes ashore to support the troops? And both sides kind of said, okay, you can do it because you prepared to do all this stuff, but don't ever do it again. Wow. Okay, so we send our debt ashore for a week. They do wonderful work. They killed about five guys that were laying ID, IEDs that were going to kill our troopers. So they made a difference. They were additive to the Air Force schedule. They weren't in place of anything. And it was wonderful. So now it's time to leave. Theodore Roosevelt coming home through the Suez. And we're about to leave the Gulf. And now all the elephants get in a big argument. The PACOM commander uh, wants to keep our the ship that's relieving us, the Reagan, in his AOR a little longer to do an exercise Malabar with the Indian Navy. The UCOM commander is saying, well, Theodore Roosevelt has to leave on time because I've got to have my presence days in the UCOM AOR. And the Air Force is saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, we, we're fighting a war here, so we can't have this big gap. So, you know, whatever. And so I said up the chain, it's like, well, you know, we could put a dead ashore in Al-Assad. And they went, you can what? Oh, that's a really good idea. So oh, instead wow. of putting four hornets ashore, we put six hornets ashore. Everybody, all the elephants went back to munching their hay. Uh, you know, PACOM commander got to keep Reagan a little longer. Theodore Roosevelt leaves on time, makes the UCOM commander happy. And the Air Force is delighted because we got six hornets on the ground in Al-Assad. And we recovered our hornets in the Mediterranean and nobody ever said another thing. But it was one of those things, you know, where uh, a little bit of innovation can go a long way. And you can get bitten for it. You might be a little bit ahead of your time, but you're ready now. And the opportunity comes up. Somebody's going to snatch it and say, okay, well, that was a good idea. Let's do this. So that was kind that's of a great, fun. That's a, yeah, that's a great vignette. I, I really like that. Thanks for sharing that because I, I do think there are these moments in leadership where senior leaders need to take decisions that could seem risky or they could get in trouble or, or are unconventional. And then when you hear about how they worked out for the, the good of the troops on the ground and accomplishing the mission and supporting those, that Marine infantryman in a, in a fighting hole. I think that's just such a, that's such a great, it, it encourages leaders to look at things from a big perspective and, and take some chances on ideas that are creative and yeah, solve it, a problem. It, yeah. And I wasn't doing this to look good. I was doing this because we had people on the ground in combat, right? You know, we needed to support them. You went on to be the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff between 2011 and 2015. Before that, you were the commander of NORTHCOM. So you had, you had a combatant command, you were vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So if you could reflect back to that level of leadership, and, and again, almost the same question, some vignettes from that time, because now you're a four-star general, right? I mean, like, that's a big deal. And I just wonder what it's like from a leadership perspective as a four-star general 
can you talk to an emerging leader and say, hey, what you're doing and learning right now was really critical to the decisions, e- even then is was critical to the decisions I was making as a four-star admiral? Yeah. So uh, the first thing I would say is when you get into a position like that, you have to keep your humility. And most people are pretty good at that, I think. But you just, you just got to remember, like, there's a lot of people who have done this, this job before me, and there's a lot of people who are going to do this job after me. I just need to give it all I have right now. And it's not about the pomp and circumstance in the position. You know, if you're, if you're waking up in the morning thinking, what have I got to do to become the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? You're making a big mistake in, in your career. But everything you learn about leadership and also technical competence through your, your career kind of comes together in those jobs. You, you have a, a, a great vantage point of experience with which to not only um, guide how the military does business, but it, in those jobs to interact with the civilian world and helping them understand what needs to be done, what can be done, what can't be done. You know, as the vice chairman, you sort of have three main jobs. One is you are, along with the deputy secretary of defense, sort of responsible for the department's investments. You know, what are you going to buy? And then you have a job that is the sort of people job. You're trying to groom the next, you know, next people who are going to get into these very senior jobs in many different places. At the same time, you're having to deal with some scandals and some unfortunate things that happen. But the third thing is the sort of public, the policy piece. In that regard, I probably... I think I've lost count, but it was over a thousand White House Situation Room meetings in four years, and where you're you're really uh, working very very closely with smart, dedicated people from other departments of government on some of the biggest problems facing our nation in foreign policy. And I, I found that uh, it took a particular skill set to be uh, genuine with those people, not, you know, to be seen as sort of Colonel Blimp, you know, coming in the door, you know, oh, here's the pompous military guy who's going to try to tell us how to suck eggs, you know, really to to cooperate with them in their world and to, you know, avoid acronyms and, and to scrupulously avoid the notion that they're being sort of run over, but to patiently explain things to them. Like if you want to go rescue a, a, a hostage, terrorist hostage in Somalia, walking them through the operation so that they can support it, answer all of their questions faithfully, and then get the president's approval to do it. That was a different skill set from anything that I had done before. But everything I had done to that point sort of led up to being able to perform that role. It was, it was fascinating. Uh, and I, I, to, some of my best friends to this day are the civilians that I worked with during that time. Yeah, I'll bet. I know it's a little unscripted question, but from the context of being the person who's sitting on the ground, just waiting for the commander to come down and say, okay, your unit is going in to do some sort of operation. From that perspective, what's happening in that situation room from an unclass, you know, perspective, sure. but like you know, from the perspective of the person sitting on the ground, you're just, you're just waiting for the word. What's happening. That's a, that is, that is a really, really good question, Dave, because I had, I had my feet in both places, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And most of the time, uh, like if you're rescuing a hostage, you're trying to capture a terrorist or something like that. You know, you're working with a special operations community. And so I made it a point to go visit them and get to know them and build their trust and, and to understand them, how they actually do business so that I could have credibility with them and then also maintain my credibility with the civilian side. So the special operators would be frustrated because they would put this beautiful plan together that they had rehearsed, and then they would push it up the line and say, we got to go tonight. 
And they didn't understand that there's a lot of other work that needs to be done when you're going to go do that. You have to, for instance, in, in one case, we had an American woman and a Danish man who were captive in the desert. And, and I mentioned in Somalia, I think it was Somalia. And so you got to go talk to the Danes and you go, hey, we're going to do this operation. It could entail some risk to your citizen. Are you okay with this? Or you know, at least let you know. You've got a lot of logistic support from neighboring countries like, hey, we want to fly some helicopters out of, you know, in your airspace or land them and, and refuel them. You know, and here's kind of what we're doing. Please say yes. And you have to brief the president. And so one of the things that I worked very hard at was to try to get the special operators to give me the essence of their plan before they finalized it so that I could now start socializing it with the people I was going to have to brief so that the yes could come very quickly. And that actually really saved us because usually by coincidence, these things happen on Friday nights when everybody's you know, kind of done for the week and they want to go home. Sure. Uh, it's like, Hey, you know, we got to get this, we got to, this got to happen. You know, we're going to, this is a fleeting opportunity to rescue this hostage or, or somebody's medical condition is declining rapidly. We need to go get them. And so now you're in the, you're in a deputies committee meeting or a principals committee meeting and, and the, uh, Deputy National Security Advisor kind of gives a summary of what we're, why we're there. Hey, there's this hostage in Somalia that we're going to, we think we can go rescue. DOD is going to talk about their plan and we'll go around the room and, you know, here's an intelligence update. And then you, you faithfully describe it. People ask really good questions and you always leave a question out there so that they've got one to ask, by the way, the bright, shiny object that, you know, right. a question, you know, you can nail the answer to. Because frankly, psychologically, that builds their confidence. If they ask you what they think is a stump the star question and you come back with a really solid answer, then it just builds their confidence and, and their willingness to recommend a yes. And it's a collegial environment. And I, I will tell you that of uh, probably 20 different special operations that I briefed through the White House, only one of them was, was actually turned down. And it was not turned down by the White House. It was turned down by the Secretary of Defense because he just wasn't comfortable with the risk level. So that's a pretty good track record. And then right. as a sort of a reward and also an additional confidence builder, I would always take a special operations communications team to the White House while the operation was going on. And I would let the interested people, probably four or five, watch the operation unfold if it was on UAV video. And I had one rule, and that was, you can ask me anything you want to ask, and we'll do our best to answer it, but there's no guidance at this point. You said, yes, we're executing this thing. We want you to see it because we want you to build confidence in our, our troopers and our SEALs or Marines or, or uh, Army folks. You can't try to tell us what to do here. This is our show, but you can watch. And that was really right. effective. Wow. The Somali, the hostage rescue, that was, that was a successful operation, wasn't it, if I remember correctly? It was, it was really amazing. I can't talk about how the SEALs got in there, but they, as they approached the camp, they lost the element of surprise. And, and basically had to do, conduct a very hasty assault. There's, there's a, a moment where a SEAL lands on top of this female hostage and says, you know, I'm a SEAL, I'm here to rescue you. And all of the hostage takers were dead in like 30 seconds. It was remarkable. Wow, that's a long and, time to be alive. 30 seconds when Navy SEALs are in the room. <laughs> well, wasn't it, it, was a camp, it was an encampment out in the open. And they yeah. just went in there and they just, you know, they, they had night vision goggle superiority. And obviously they're so well-trained and they just... Uh, very surgically eliminated all those guys while the right. seal was laying on top of, of uh, the call sign was Bell. I can't remember her real name. Wow. So currently you're actually a part of the president's intelligence advisory board and the national science board. Um, you were appointed by president Biden and you've got 
some other really interesting things going on. You mentioned before your podcast, The Adrenaline Zone, which definitely want to give a plug for, and I'll put some links to that in the show notes. I've listened to a couple of the episodes. They're fascinating. You have this Stop the Addiction Fatality Epidemic uh, effort underway, which um, after losing a son to an opioid addiction, you began dedicating yourself to studying the issue and making a difference. I'd like to have you talk about that for a little bit. Sure. We lost a, a wonderful young man. My youngest son grew up in a military family, had a little bit of anxiety and depression and ended up turning to substances because he had been misdiagnosed as being ADHD and was prescribed Adderall. And he was using alcohol and marijuana to come down from the Adderall at night and eventually got himself into a, a situation where we didn't think we could keep him safe. We put him into treatment and uh, we did not know that he had an opioid issue. And so we did not know how dangerous it was for him to come out of that treatment. That's a very uh, important moment when you come out of treatment and go into recovery. And we lost him on his fifth day of college at University of Denver to an accidental overdose of fentanyl-laced heroin. This fentanyl is the big problem right now. So we decided that from our vantage point of being, uh, you know, having a good, strong network of donors and, and people we know and respect and love and knowing how to get things done, that we we would feel remiss if we didn't try to do something about this. So we started the SAFE project, which is, as you mentioned, Stop the Addiction Fatality Epidemic. It's been going for almost five years now. We're making a difference. It's, it's, it's getting tougher. You know, we're losing ground in this battle because uh, fentanyl is so cheap and easy to import from uh, Mexico and China and the like. But we've gotten some really, really important things done. So our um, website is safeproject.us. If anybody's interested in checking it out, and we're here to help uh, other families avoid the tragedy that we experienced. That's fantastic. And I'll make sure that there's a link to that in the show notes as well. You also have a new book coming out called uh, Sailing Up Wind. It's coming out this fall, I believe. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, hopefully it'll be out this fall. You know, getting the, should have the final proofs here soon. My father told me that I should write a book about my career and problem solving and that sort of thing. And I had, had a lot of friends telling me I should write a book. I really wasn't all that wild about it, but I figured, okay, uh, it's been an interesting career and life. And one thing I, I wanted to do was, was uh, weave in my leadership lessons. And it turned out that that's, it's a lot harder than it sounds. I have a, a systematic framework that I look uh, through leadership at, which has five anchors, basically leading yourself, leading people, leading organizations leading execution and leading change. And each of those has you know, four or so key threads that run, run through it. And the, the challenge was, how do I weave that into the book? Because I learned about all those things all along the way, not in sequence. And so what I decided to do was to have these interludes uh, between you know, every third chapter or so, there's a, one of those pillars is very briefly discussed, only two or three pages uh, about, I didn't want to bludgeon people with the leadership talk but just the important pieces of each of those anchors. And the name Sailing Up Wind is essentially der derived from, I grew up sailing on San Diego Bay, but uh, for so much of my career, I felt like I was pushing change, trying new things, trying to be innovative and pushing against a system that sometimes is reluctant. So I called it Sailing Up Wind. We'll see. I haven't seen what the cover looks like yet. I can't wait, uh, but it'll hopefully be out this fall. That's great. Is there any link to that yet? Or is there, is there like a pre-sale website or anything that people can read a little bit more no, about? Or is it just uh I, I think it'll, it'll be coming soon. Uh, I wish I had one for you to, to link to, but okay. uh, it's the Naval Institute Press. We'll be putting it out. 
And uh, so look for sailing upwind sometime. That's great. Great. Thank you so much. I, you know, a, a career all the way up to four-star admiral, vice chairman, joint chiefs of staff, a, a combatant commander, a book coming out. I, there's just two hours just wasn't even enough time to scratch the surface. I appreciate so much that you took time out of your busy schedule to talk about leadership and, and help convey some of the, the moments in leadership that you had throughout your tour or your, your entire career or those emerging leaders across all the branches of the services. This has been a fantastic, fantastic conversation and I appreciate it. Is there anything you want to wrap up on or is there a question I didn't ask that you really wanted to convey a message on? Not really. I, I would just say, and I meant to say this at the beginning, but we got right into the questions is I really appreciate the fact that you're doing this. Uh, my son is a religious follower of your uh, podcast. When I was growing up and when you were growing up in this business, there was no such thing as a podcast. And uh, I, I know that had it been available to me back then, I would have been an avid listener because you just have to be a sponge. You have to vacuum up everything you can and process it in your own mind. Everything you're reading, everything you're observing, and everything you're trying as a leader. Uh, it's a lifelong journey. And I'm still learning every day on how to, to improve as a leader. So I really respect and appreciate the effort you are, are putting into this project. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for passing that along. I'm, I'm sorry. I hope your uh, your son doesn't end up in some sort of therapy after listening to my voice over and over and over again. I can't stand the sound of my own voice. So I feel bad for him. But uh, yes, keep keep chugging along on that. I, I appreciate you saying that. I, I am really passionate about this project. And, and I think that so much of what we learn as human beings is conveyed through stories. I mean, everything from the Bible all the way up. I mean, it's, we, just, we just learn through stories. And I like this medium as a way to give people a platform to tell their stories and share the things that they learned in a consumable format. And, but it, it requires people to volunteer their time like you. So I, I really appreciate it. And well, with that, I want to go ahead and, and wrap up. This has been Admiral Sandy Winnefeld, James Sandy, call sign Sandy Winnefeld. And I really appreciate your insight and thoughts on leadership. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>